Recovery Elevator, episode 104. In my mind, I believe that I can still manage. I just can't manage well. Where I came to this fall is that I can't manage my life if I'm dead. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator podcast. My name is Paul. Thank you so much for joining us. According to the Recovery Elevator sobriety tracker on my phone, I've been sober for two years, four months, three weeks, and two days. On today's podcast, we've got Jeff. He's been sober since December 5th, 2016. He got uber honest with his wife and used his family to create accountability with. Okay, let's get started. I recently had a tremendous opportunity to volunteer at Hope Rehab in Thailand. In Recovery Elevator Podcast Episode 76, I interview a gentleman named Simon. He is the owner of Hope Rehab, and after our interview, we chatted for a little bit. He said, hey, if you ever find yourself in Thailand, swing by and maybe volunteer for a week or so. Actually, that might have been my idea, but that's exactly what happened, and it was an amazing time. I have never been to an inpatient rehab place. I'm running a podcast on addiction and recovery, and I've never been to rehab. So I wanted to verse myself. I love to travel, and so I thought it would be a good fit. And today's podcast is going to be about the value bombs that I learned while in rehab. But let me take a moment to talk to you guys first about Hope Rehab. And at this moment, this is truly organic statements. There is not affiliate links. We may be working together in the future. But at this moment, this is me just talking about Hope Rehab. If I drink again, it's nice to know that Hope Rehab is there. If shit hits the fan and gets dicey and I find myself in that situation, I'm going to Hope Rehab. I am hands down. Despite the fact that it's pretty darn close to the beach, Thailand's weather is perfect. Well, a little hot and humid, but the weather was fantastic and the food amazing. The rehab center itself was awesome. I don't have anything to compare it to, but after chatting with many of the clients that were staying there and many of those had been to multiple rehab centers, they had all concurred that this was the best one that they had attended. And this carries some weight in itself. There were a couple clients there who were attending for their second and third times. What I mean by that is, don't you think you would try a different rehab center out if you didn't get sober there the first time? These people were like, no, I loved Hope Rehab. It wasn't their methodology, their pedagogy. It was myself. I didn't do the work. However, this time it's going to be different. So Hope Rehab is a 12-step rehab center, but it encompasses a whole lot of different approaches. There's cognitive behavioral therapy, there's meditation, there's mindfulness, and their counselors are versed in all of these recovery approaches. I volunteered and helped out, but I also tried to be a sponge and learn as much as I possibly could. I selfishly took this opportunity as a moment for me to bolster my personal recovery portfolio. Hope Rehab is located, well, on the other side of the world and about an hour south of Bangkok. You can just Google Hope Rehab Thailand or go to recoveryelevator.com, show notes episode 104 for a link to their website. I'm also going to be interviewing a couple of the counselors and people that I met at that podcast in the upcoming 10, 15 episodes. So let's get to it. These are the value bombs that I learned while in rehab. Now about half the clients there are for strictly alcohol and there are 25 beds. The other half are there for other drugs, be it cocaine, heroin, etc. The interesting thing is, and I've heard it before on this podcast, that the majority of them realize within a couple weeks that it wasn't the other drug. It wasn't the cocaine, the meth, the heroin that got them there. It was the alcohol. Interesting. I learned that a lot of the clients were still in denial of how deep their addiction had taken root. And I hate to say it, some of them won't stay sober. 
I learned that even though we were on the other side of the globe, a lot of these clients were still just going through the motions. Like I just mentioned, some of them won't stay sober. I learned that addiction does not segregate. There were people from four continents. There was lawyers, doctors, social workers, accountants, etc. I learned that Thailand is hot and freaking humid. Oh yeah, the day before I got there, there was a 12-foot wild python roaming around. While in rehab, I learned that alcohol is communal. I had the same story as a guy in Malaysia. We hit it right off. I learned that we are the lucky ones. There are so many out there struggling who don't get to rehab or even get to listen to this podcast. So we are the lucky ones that aren't in full denial. I learned about the fuck it button. That's the button you push when you just want to say fuck it. I learned if you experience mild depression once, you have a 16% higher chance of experiencing it again. I learned that it takes your body three days to recuperate from 20 minutes of stress. Here's a hint. Frozen got it right. Let it go. I learned that 21 days to learn a new habit is a myth. It actually takes 66 days to create new pathways. Once habit circuitry has been created in the brain, it can never be unlearned. However, new ones can be created, and that's the good news. I learned about NVC, which is nonviolent communication. NVC is all about communicating with others in ways, well, that does include us hitting the fuck it button and getting violent. So there's this thing called cortisol that can build up in our body when stress builds. Cortisol equals no bueno. Cortisol from stress impairs learning new things and problem solving. Now watching TV does not lower cortisol levels, but reading does. Interesting. I learned that the ego lives in the past and the future, but only the heart can live in the moment. This next one I absolutely love. The road to slash in recovery narrows. The road to recovery narrows means today is the best chance you have at getting sober. The road in recovery narrows is there are things that I got away with in early sobriety, month one, two, three, four, that I can't get away with today. I need to continue to sharpen my edge in sobriety and keep my recovery portfolio full. In a rehab, I learned that the problem is not the problem. I learned that we need to find a way to stop the relationship with the chemical alcohol, and it boils down to us not being satisfied. I learned I am not powerful, I'm not special, and I am powerless over alcohol. We've all heard of the 12 steps. I learned there's actually a step zero, and that is basically trying to drink like a normal person over and over and over and over. I learned that to quit drinking, you only need to quit one thing, and that's everything. Oh, gotcha there, good. A wise macaw said the solution to quit drinking is to have a spiritual experience without alcohol. I learned that it's imperative to find a higher power because me, that's capital M-E, as a higher power, failed big time. And in personal experience, that holds true. I learned that there's a lot of laughter in rehab. It was a hell of a lot of fun. I learned that I agree with the statement that people stop maturing emotionally and spiritually once addiction takes hold. Resentments. Resentments are offensively dangerous. Let me say that again. Resentments that we hold on to, aka you gotta let it go, the resentments are dangerous. In rehab, I learned you don't have much of a chance at sobriety unless responsibility falls on your shoulders. If you're still blaming others, you're wasting yourself and a lot of other people's time. I learned a little bit about Buddhism, and there's five pillars that prevent harm to ourselves and others. A gentleman named James told me about the AA waltz. One step, two step, three step, drink. Basically, nobody wants to do the work in the fourth step. I learned that addicts and alcoholics are a sensitive group of people. I've learned that lesson before with the private Facebook community groups, but I learned that lesson again in person. 
I learned that it's possible to worry when there's nothing to worry about. In fact, we can worry because we don't have anything to worry about. I learned that I wasn't the only one that went to Thailand. I purchased a fare for one person, but Gary, my addiction, came with me. While I was attending some of the classes, I heard Gary on my shoulder tell me, Paul, we've been sober for over two years. We don't need to do this work. Haha, Gary. Nice try, buddy. But in reality, I do wish I did a little bit more work when I was there. In fact, a counselor named Hank did an exercise with us, and he said, Okay, everybody, for the next seven days, please do an ABC. That is an exercise that we did. And then after that, he said it again. He said, guys, I'm going to ask you for the next seven days, if you want to stay sober, you have to do an ABC tonight. The next week, same teacher, same instructions, same ridiculous amount of humidity. The teacher said, okay, show me your seven ABCs. Only 20% of the class did. He stopped right there and said, 80% of you guys will drink after rehab. Reason why? There's your answer. Boom. That was powerful. You could have heard a howler monkey from about 100 miles away in that classroom at that moment. But at the end of the day, that's where you draw the line in the sand, black and white. If you do the work, you stay sober. If you don't, you won't. It's that simple. Now I want to thank those at Hope Rehab, Hank, Samina, Carla, Luke, Bertie, Nina, Bill, Simon, Jeff, Paul, and Alon, an amazing staff. Thank you very much for having me for 12 days. It was a tremendous time. Now let's hear from interviewee Jeff. Jeff, how are you? I am doing well, thank you. Yeah, so great to have you. Listeners, I first heard of Jeff when he emailed me, not a short or a semi-long email, but a full-fledged Lord of the Rings type style email. And I imagine it was somewhat therapeutic for you because I've done a similar timeline for myself and it feels good to just hit the send button and let that story go. And after I read your, your timeline, your story all about you, I was like, you know what? I need to get this guy on the podcast. And so, A, we turned it into a blog. You can read his full story, you know, the long-form email that I got at recoveryelevator.com under the blog section. And also, I'm excited to hear it in person. Jeff, thank you so much for joining us. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate being on and what Recovery Elevator has been to me for the last, I, I would guess, uh, 50, 53, 54 days of sobriety. I'm not much of a counter. But, uh, yeah, I'm thankful to be on. Well, I know the answer to this question when your last drink, but tell listeners, when was your last drink? It was uh, December 4th, yeah, right before the holidays. It was brave. <laughs> nice job at getting sober before Christmas, New Year's and all that pizzazz coming up. But before we get any further, give listeners a little background about yourself, maybe where you're from, what you do for a living, how old are you, do you have a family, and what do you like to do for fun, Jeff? I live in an outlying community of uh, Denver, Colorado. We're kind of a mountain community that's pretty unique. I have a wife. Uh, she's amazing of about four and a half years now. And uh, my son, who is uh, approaching 17, so he's close to those college age years. For fun, I, you know, most of my funds wrapped up in business. I am an entrepreneur and I service uh, commercial properties, doing uh, cleaning and uh, light maintenance to commercial properties in the area. And that takes up most of my time for fun. We're kind of a boating family. So we do a lot of wakeboarding, uh, fishing, and I'm uh, going to test the waters of doing some fly fishing here in the uh, upcoming season. That's something I, I did in my 20s, but I'm going to try and pick that, that up again now that I have a little bit more free time. 
Nice. Thank you for that, Jeff. And I imagine, and first off, congratulations. You've been sober for 55 days. December 4th was your last drink. That's big time. Nice job. Now, I imagine that wasn't your first time trying to stop. Can you tell us about any rules you put into place? Did you ever say, look, I'm only drinking on the weekends. I'm not drinking before five. Did they work? And did you put them in place? Yeah, you know, I, it's kind of funny. I, for as checkered as my history of over the last 10 years of drinking, I didn't really try and stop until this fall. You know, I, I think we all kind of throughout, a, maybe even throughout a 10-year period, you put certain things into place. I mean, you'll say, well, I'm only going to spend this much money on alcohol. And then you end up buying the biggest, cheapest bottle of vodka that you can or... <laughs> You know, and then pretty soon, you know, you tell your wife, well, we, we were only going to spend $20 a piece per person, you know, and then maybe you you extend your limit. Obviously, the, the obvious ones would be, hey, we're just going to drink on weekends, you know, and that can kind of bleed into a bad day on Tuesday or whatnot. But Labor Day, you, you do, holidays. You, yeah, exactly. If Labor Day is a Monday and, well, it was that's an extended weekend. So you do, and it, it quickly falls flat. You find those things get broken all the time. But, I, but you know, I, I was kind of obstinate for for a handful of years there where, you know, I noticed the progression of drinking more. And I quite honestly, at, at moments and in times over the last decade, I really didn't care. I was just obstinate. And I, I realized that there was probably, that not probably, I realized that there was uh, too much consumption. And it was not something I was interested in tackling. I you know, even with all the hardships that came with it, that's kind of where I was at. If I was a problem drinker, it was kind of like a dance, you know, with a tango partner or whatnot. You're, you have this relationship with this thing and, you know, on some days it's, you, it's a smooth dance and it does what it's supposed to do for you. And then some days you trip up and fall hard. And I was okay with the, taking the bad with the good. And there was a lot of that. I love that analogy, Jeff, of alcohol being kind of like a tango dance partner because at one point alcohol was my best friend. And then, you know, I bust out the breakdancing cardboard and it felt like I was breakdancing on the pavement and it just didn't work out. And my best friend just bombed on me. Yeah. You know, you mentioned in your story, I want to talk about this. I've mentioned this on the podcast. Jeff, you and I were the lucky ones. There are so many people out there struggling. They don't have the chance to get 55 days of sobriety. And I've got over two years of sobriety. There's so many out there that don't get that opportunity that we have. Now, you mentioned the best part of my story is that I get to be a high bottom drunk. Talk to me about your bottom and that we are the lucky ones. And, you know, we don't have to descend that far. But tell me about your bottom. Yeah, I mean, I, I call it a high bottom, and it's not because I haven't gone through some of the most uh, treacherous uh, places that alcohol can take you. And and I say that I'm, I was obstinate about wanting to quit drinking. The truth is, is that it takes a lot of us a long time to figure out the label you want to place on this a thing. very I mean, long time, you know, correct. <laughs> yeah, you, you know, you if you, fall in, if you fall into trouble, you say, well, a lot of people fall into trouble. It doesn't mean that I'm a problem drinker. It just means I got a bad rap in that instance. And you make these qualifiers or justifications where you keep hanging on a thread of hope that you can be a normal drinker. And and I think that's accentuated in a long time or a good time period because I, there was a portion of my life where uh, alcohol was absolutely non-existent. So, you know, I went through my teen years as a social drinker and 
I was the same as everybody else in terms of maybe either even junior high or high school. And I know that sounds young, but it was the, it was the social status and social thing that we did as teenagers. But, you know, it didn't carry, it didn't go into adulthood with me at all. At age 18, I had gotten married. So I didn't really have any clear direction about college or career choices or anything like that. Got married to my high school sweetheart. And, you know, I started taking off from there in terms of of life and doing adult things. And, you know, I got a job. I started a small business. I was working locally with our kids at church on staff as a pastor. And I spent a solid 10 years from age 18 to 28 being that normal drinker. I would have, you know, a beer or two, you know, at Thanksgiving and then that that six pack or the four that were left could last two months. You know, wow. I, I, so when you descend or that progression kicks in, be it whether you're 18 or whether you're 24 or whether you're 51, you know, you kind of scratch your head and question, well, I can't be an alcoholic or I can't be a problem drinker because I spent, you know, a solid portion of my life up until 28, 29, 30 without any issue whatsoever. So you start questioning what the issue is. Is this physical? Is it biochemical? Is it the condition of my status and where I'm at in life? And, you know, the stigma is the last thing you want to do is point yourself out as being flawed. And so it can take a long time for somebody, you know, it can take them upwards of a decade to kind of figure out based on their past, what, what is the problem here? It took me about a decade, just like you mentioned, yeah. where I had to put everything out in place. For example, I, you know, Dr. Google these days, I found out that I was on depression medicine uh, called paroxetine and the Paxil was causing me to drink like a fish, right? And so I was so excited right. because in these forums on Dr. Google, I found out, you know, if I just stopped taking my depression medicine, you know, I'm not a doctor and so I'm, I shouldn't make that decision for myself anyways. You know, I, I decided to quit taking my meds and then I thought I could return as, to drink as a normal drinker and I can summarize that experience up with two words and, and that's dumpster fire. It just didn't work. And, and so you mentioned you were a normal drinker for about 10 years. When did you realize that you're like, wait a second, you know, you've, you, you've, all the other options are gone, that it might be you? Yeah, within about, I would say, 10 to 12 years, you know, we kind of settled in, my wife and I, my first wife, we settled into an I ideal community. I had a good income. I was a hard worker. And by the end of my 20s, you, we had the American dream. And I had a little bit more free time on my hands and we started, uh, you know, socializing and fraternizing with neighbors and pulling the lawn chairs out and getting, you know, getting close to everybody. And I noticed a progression, you know, in my late 20s of, you know, I was living for that weekend. So where everything that I skipped in terms of partying or what would happen, happen in uh, maybe in your earlier or college years or early 20s was starting to happen in, in my early 30s. And, you know, for all of us being, you know, responsible, functional adults, we sure would, you know, live for that Friday afternoon where you're pulling out lawn chairs and, you know, or maybe playing pool or billiards in somebody's man cave. And you live for that Friday, Saturday, Sunday, where, you know, you start to have young children, you're not going, you're not driving anywhere. And, you know, there was an acceleration well, hang drinking. on one sec. I, th and, I think you just sure. described the bulk of every Budweiser and Bud Light commercial right there. Just, you know, man cave, billiards, hanging out in lawn chairs. Yeah, I, I get it 100%. All right, sorry to interrupt. Keep and, going. Uh, and, 
and ab- and absolutely one hundred percent normal, right? I mean, that's what totally that's what the commercials that's what the commercials tell us. That's exactly where we should be at. We should be, you know, having having dinner parties and you know hitting the hot tub after, and you know, and and the funny precursor is, and this is somewhat interesting, is that I mentioned that in you know my mid twenties, I was a staff pastor at church what we started doing instead of, you know, conforming to organized religion is we actually would have a house church. So our house church was what what they kind of considered like a simple church where, you know, a lot of times in today's religious culture, you have this spiritual thing that you do over in a building and then you have your other life that you do at your house and you separate these friends. And we wanted everything to be the continuity to be authentic. So, on Saturday nights, we literally had church in our house, and that came with drinking as well. And so, you know, you had meaningful conversation, you broke bread, you had dinner, you also had drinking. And yeah, I noticed that. that. Yeah, yeah, it was cool. I mean, it was the coolest church in the world, right? But the fallout of that was that all the leftover liquor landed at my house where we were gathering. So pretty soon, I lived for this thing that was Friday, Saturday, you know, bled into Sunday and you've got leftover liquor, which I was never a, you know, I was never a buy. I've probably gone into a liquor store a handful of times, maybe a dozen times sure. the 10 years prior to the next thing, you know, I've got leftovers. And, you know, as you become more successful or you get more downtime or the fruits of your labor, you get a little bit of boredom. And I'm sitting there on a Monday night or a Tuesday night. And that's when you start having a nightcap, you know, before you go to bed or, you know, the, the, it's, a, it's a slow killer and it's a progression that creeps up on you pretty sneakily. And I remember when I had my first nightcap after our bar crawl in Spain, we all came back. It was like four o'clock in the morning and I was the only one out of the four of us that, you know, I was like, you know what? We kicked ass tonight. I'm going to have a little vodka and just vodka and a lot of it. And my buddy was like, dude, are you really going to do that right now? And that was my first nightcap ever. And it would kind of open the doors to many more nightcaps as you imagine. And, and walk me up to when the first DUI and maybe explain how you welcomed it. And then the second DUI is how it forced yeah. moderation. Explain more about that with me. Sure. The first one I certainly didn't welcome. It was a, it was a kind of a slap to the face. <laughs> you know, we, we didn't, like I said, we were, we were all neighbors and hanging out, you know, in your normal, normal uh, suburban America, you know. And we did have one night where we went out to the bar and we had uh, designated a driver for the evening. Well, that driver as you do, you know, started drinking that night. And so I felt that I was okay to be the one that drove us home. And in fact, we weren't even driving home. We were driving around the corner to, to a uh, IHOP or a breakfast place to just kind of finish the night. So in my naivete, I don't think that it's proper to probably be leaving a bar at, you know, midnight or one in the morning and think you're going to get anywhere without a cop pulling you over. Sure. So I was, I was mortified. I mean, that's just, it just doesn't happen to, doesn't happen to anyone or everybody keeps it in uh close to their vest in terms of talking about it because I was the first one I felt like that would ever go through this and it was embarrassing but you know I didn't feel like I had a problem at that point I didn't feel like I just felt like I got a, a bum deal and I know that not to be the case now because you know if if your pursuit is alcohol you're going to make silly decisions and that that was definitely one of them so you know th- 
that's not really when the wheels came off or anything like that, but I would say that that, you know, in terms of consequences, that was a contributing factor for me quitting my day, day job. My evening and my self-employment had started accelerating, and that was easy then for me to make the choice of I'm going to be fully self-employed in the evenings versus do this thing that I love during the day, which was a, just an amazing career, and I put that to the wayside just because of the, some of the driving challenges and economic challenges of going through a DUI. Um, the on, following Jeff, year... It, sure, so sure. You, you're, you're doing the, the entrepreneurial adventure at nighttime, and because you know the driving concerns, I predict storm clouds on the horizon with this. Am I correct? There is a storm cloud, and I wish you would have told me, you know, ten years ago. But oh, my bad. Um, yeah, I mean, some of my <laughs> some of my uh, my decisions after that, you know, neglecting something that you love to do because you have a consequence for this. In 2008, you know, 16 years, uh, 15, 16 years into marriage, our our marriage dissolved. So. I wouldn't say that uh, drinking had a large part to do with that. However, I can take a personal inventory and say that I might have been a different person communication-wise instead of having this thing to fall back in the evening and comfort me. Sure. In all honesty, I mean, we got married young at age 18, and uh, my wife uh, felt like she had missed out on some of her more youthful experiences being in marriage in our 20s, and she kind of wanted to test those waters of, of doing some different things. And so, you know, in 2008, 2009, and just mutually with no fighting whatsoever, I received the house, I received primary care of our son, and uh, I have my business. And I found myself in 2009, 2010, you know, full of all the normal responsibilities, but none of the accountability. And, you know, you, you can clip the cords of the elevator right there. So yeah. I felt I felt self-pity. I felt like here's a person who, you know, takes care of his wife, takes care of his child, takes care of his business, takes care of his neighbors, takes care of his church. And I felt abandoned. And I used that isolation to to let the rails come off. And so, you know, 2009, 2010, I descended to what would be normal people's uh, bottom, I would think. Mm-hmm. because towards the end of 2010, I was at a local bar. I knew I had had too many uh, drinks to drive home. So I had called my cousin, and I think this is right before New Year's, right around December 29th of 2010, uh, maybe, maybe the 30th. I had called my cousin to come pick me up. She came into the bar. I know she probably had a couple of drinks on my tab, and I allowed her to drive us home. And she missed a turn. We were uh, jabbering and talking and chatting on the way home like uh, inebriated people do. And driving was the secondary uh, portion of that event on the way home. And we went uh, at high speed into a concrete uh, barrier. Wow. And so I spent the start of uh, 2011 in a hospital with six broken bones. I had a uh, broken femur, broken hip broken hand in three places, broken nose, torn ligaments in my neck. And that's how my 2011 started. And like I said, I mean, this would be uh, the normal person's bottom. She received a DUI with uh, very extreme consequences thereafter in terms of, you know, you know, harming another person who was in the passenger seat, that being me. But, you know, the subsequent six months after that car accident, I didn't stop. You know, I, in fact, I, I used probably 
uh, to Herculean lengths, alcohol to kind of numb all the pain that I was going through, both in my, you know, my mental state of my my marriage ending, uh, my self-pity and having to take care of everything myself and, you know, just the physical state that I was in uh, after the car accident. I just kept on keeping on. Yeah, well, Jeff, I think at that moment, if if I were in your position, I would have hit the the effort button for a long time. Just finger on the fuck it button for a long time, and just pedal to the metal. Yeah, and started drinking. And I did. I, I remember embarrassingly, you know, people standing above me in the hospital. I've never asked anybody for anything. I'm somebody who prides myself on taking care of everything for everybody. I find my value there. And I was so embarrassed of, uh, you know, being in the hospital room and having my friends coming by. And, you know, you kind of get that condescending, whether it's verbal or not, that tisk, 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 you know, where people are, you know, shame, shame on you. This is where alcohol has taken you. And quite, quite honestly, pedal to the metal. I, after I, as soon as I got home from the hospital, about five, six days later, I couldn't wait, you know, for my family to leave me alone and, Next thing you know, I'm, you know, getting my crutches and I'm going down to the to the cabinet to find myself a drink to temper the feelings that I'm feeling. And I went pretty hard at it for uh, four or five more months until I got my second DUI. Wow. And, and Jeff, I'm going to use another automobile pun right here. Let's shift gears a little bit and fast forward into fourth gear to, <laughs> you know, this, this year or 2016, actually. Um, it said in 2016, you, you moderated, you actually successfully cut back a lot, but the obsession didn't disappear. I want to talk about that. Then after, after that, I want to talk about how you did it because a lot of people don't get 55 days and, and I'm personally curious to how you did it, but talk to me about the mental obsession when you cut back in 2016. Sure. I'll uh, fast forward to 2016. You know, I, I got through all the, you know, gymnastics that, the court system will put you through. I remarried in 2011 or in 2012, but I met my wife during that same turmoil in uh, 2011. I met my wife. We spent a year together and remarried in 2012. And through all that turmoil of the court system, I really felt like, you know, I didn't, I still, even with those consequences, I felt like I didn't have an alcohol problem. I had a relationship problem that was unraveling with my first wife I had. And, and so with the court system, I really got to hit the reset button and through their, you know, rigid standards of not drinking, I felt almost cured in the sense that I could continue. But all I found over the last, you know, four to five years is that the progression started to accelerate again mm-hmm. and I wasn't concerned with stopping. Mm-hmm. But uniquely last summer towards the tail end, my wife's daughter was in a car accident, and she had multiple strokes as a uh, post cursor to that accident. And, you know, my wife and I were sitting in the hospital, and I, I asked her, I said, you know, we had a lot of sober think time kind of in, in that hospital. And I told her, you know, I said, I can't imagine ever wanting to put myself in this place in the hospital where people are worried about me, people are concerned about me. And I feel like if I continue to drink, that's exactly where I'm going to end up. Now, mind you, I had already done this five years prior. I had put myself in the hospital and I didn't really, I didn't even realize, you know, the words that I was speaking like were post prophetic, you know, it's like, 
incredibly short memory, right? Exactly. I, While you were saying thing, that, I was like, wait thing. a second, Jeff. Didn't you just tell me yeah. about that previous story? Yeah. And you talk about those are the aha moments where you go, you know, I've already done this to my family. Exactly. You know, here's her daughter suffering. The doctors gave her about 5% chance to live. So we spent a lot of time at the hospital. Wow. We had, you know, through powerful, you know, just moments, high power or, uh, you know, higher power moments we had in those few days. And that was the time, that was the aha moment at the end of uh, last summer where I really said, you know what, I don't want to put myself in the position where I, uh, other people are looking and not necessarily from that for them or letting them down. I just don't want to be there. And I felt like if I continued to drink that I was going to have a short end and I would be putting myself in the situation where people, you know, I, I have a great life. I have a tremendous family. My wife is beautiful. My son is an absolute rock star. I have all these tremendous things going for me and I don't, I don't want to lose those things because I couldn't figure this thing out. And that really put me on the, on the path of the last few months of the fall to really try and see if I could, I could curb this thing or moderate. But Jeff, you just dropped a huge value bomb right there. I have learned firsthand experience. You can't think your way out of quitting drinking, but you can follow the drink. You can play the tape forward. And what you did in your mind is that you recalled, you said, well, what happens if I drink again? Well, I, you followed the drink, you played the tape forward in your mind, and you knew that eventually it's just a matter of time, you're gonna end up again in that hospital, probably the third DUI, maybe a fourth. And, and, that, right. and listeners, that is a huge value bomb right there. Whenever I wanna drink, and I'll be lying to you if I've been sober for over two years, I haven't had the occasional craving, they are rare, thank God at this moment, but I just play the tape forward in my head. I'm like, okay, I'm not gonna have gonna. I'm not just gonna have one. You know, one is too many, and a thousand's not enough. I'm just gonna keep drinking, 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 and I don't know where I'm gonna stop. That's really the only thinking that I could actually do with this. Everything else is just you got to give up and all this. I mean, you got to listen to the previous 103 episodes to to really figure out how to quit drinking. But uh, yeah, talk to me about the obsession part. Yeah, the obsession part, and that you know. I, and honestly, I remember being court ordered to AA. I'm one of those guys. I remember you talking about the guy who has to throw his uh, AA log into the offering basket, sure. right? I mean, I was one of those guys that definitely had to do AA through a court order. And I was, and I have to tell you, Paul, I mean, there's guys in there that are court ordered that are interested in be, being there. But sometimes you get the, you know, you don't feel welcome there if you can't get to that first step. And what I found, and the hardest thing that I had not in common with the members of AA is that I can't get past that first step, especially in those moments. Prior to last fall, I can admit that I have, you might even have to help me with the step here, I can admit that I have a problem with alcohol and that it has power over me. But the second part of that is that your life is what it's... Become unmanageable. It, it becomes unmanageable. I can't get past that part because I do believe that I can continue drinking and I can manage my life. It's not going to be managed as well. I'm going to be inefficient. I'm not going to get things done as, as good. I am going to cut corners. But I feel like going to jail or having my license restricted, I can still run a business. I can still, in my mind, I believe that I can still manage. I just can't manage well. Where I came to this fall is that I can't manage my life if I'm dead. And, and that's where everybody has 
to arrive at and you're lucky. Like I just said earlier, you and I are lucky that we both arrived at that conclusion because I can't think of another disease out there, another drug that will tell you that you don't have a problem with it and and just how volatile and deadly that is. Because a lot of people, it's just denial. That's what it is. And you and I finally got to a point. We said, yeah, I, 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 I can't do this alone. I'm unmanageable and I need help. And it sounds like to me, you just started to binge on something else. Would it be a podcast? <laughs> yeah, yeah, really. I mean, I took a, I could, I took a couple of swings there in the fall. Where a couple of swings, know, I love I, it. Well, I, a couple, uh, yeah, a couple of swings in the fall where I told my wife, or my wife told me, hey, you know, let's just have drinks on the weekend or whatnot. And I think right around December third, we had a friend's birthday party. We knew we were going to be drinking on a Saturday. I'm pretty sure that that party for me started on Thursday. You know, <laughs> I, I, it started on Thursday. I have I had a fog on Friday. I think I drank into that fog on Friday, made it to the birthday party, which was just in a local, you know, in a local area here by our home. And by Sunday, I just felt wretched. And that, like I said, I with with all the uh, the horrible horror stories that I have of what what should have been my bottom. I got to that Sunday on December 4th and I just told my wife, I, I told her on Monday morning, I said, you know what, this whole even on the weekend thing, this, this isn't going to fly. And so instead of putting the brakes on, you know, I drove this shitty car right to the impound lot and watched it get crushed. And <laughs> on Monday, I, I searched for podcasts. I thank God that yours came up. I went through the episode zero zero. Are you an alcoholic? I think I pinged uh, twenty four of the twenty five questions as a yes. <laughs> the only one that the only one that I didn't get right was if you go to the doctor, which I'm too stubborn to go to the doctor, and I'm too afraid of what they would say. So um, I think I got that one right. But, that is um, too funny. Yeah, I, I just started binge listening to the podcast. I hit about five or six the first day. You know, I it wasn't the worst uh, withdrawals that I've ever had. I've had a couple that were worse. You said, like, God, this uh, guy just won't shut up. Gosh, darn it. <laughs> no, it was, it was good. I mean, finding the similarities in everybody's story, knowing that you're not the one that's the only one that's out there, knowing that a lot of us struggle, a lot of us have had consequences. Like I said, I, in so many areas of my life, I feel like I'm a rock star, but in this area, for someone who's strong-willed and gets everything done in all other areas, my will has nothing it, it, it's nothing when it comes to alcohol. I, I have no, I have no will when it comes to it. It, it, it beats me up, and it's me. Just like uh, I think Shane said, you know, in podcast fifteen, you know, he just said accept is the answer. I had mm-hmm. a very good conversation with my wife. I took that Monday, you know, went a hundred podcasts later, and you know, I'm just trying to catch up with you guys. I might not be able to catch up with you in days, which I hope I. I never get to catch up with you guys in days that you always stay well far ahead of me. But uh, in terms of the community and the group, I feel like I found a family, not only with uh, the podcast that I get to listen to once a week instead of, you know, 12 times a day, you know, starting with uh, Cafe RE this week, I'm starting to figure out what my recovery portfolio is going to look like. Boom. You have been listening. And and listeners, Jeff just dropped two value bombs right there. I want to recap what you just said. In episode 15, Shane mentioned acceptance is the answer. That's page 417 of the big book, one of my favorite quotes ever. 
But before that, you were given the gift of desperation, which we're given often this gift in sobriety. What happens is, though, we don't accept it. But you were given the gift of desperation, and acceptance is the answer. You took it. You ran with it. You drove that car headfirst into the impound lot. You said, I'm done. Here we are 55 days later. How do you feel? I feel great. I've had a couple of days within the 55 where I was in the fetal position sucking my thumb, you know. But other than that, you know, I had one day, and it's hard. I tell people who are are thinking about quitting, you know. It's like like having the flu, you know, for a week or whatnot. And that's the physical, you know, withdrawals. You know, it's like having the flu. So if you can buck up and, you know, get ready in that sense. The stupid thing is that none of us get the flu decide to get the flu or get the flu. And then, you know, a week later you'd say, Oh, I want to get the flu again. So, you know, you want to go back drinking, drinking's a fickle animal. You can get through the physical withdrawals, but you know, a week later you say, Oh, that wasn't a big deal. Maybe I can have a drink, you know, which is crazy. So I had a couple of, a couple of days in there where it was rough. I know, you know, my wife and I have made a habit over the last handful of years of, you know, when we're put, we're wrapping the Christmas presents and, you know, we throw on music. We've had a cocktail with that, you know, tradition. And so that was hard. You know, well, I woke well, how up did you get past to, that? <laughs> you know, Trans-Siberian Orchestra's playing. And how did yeah, you get past right? those those moments? I'm not kidding you. I, I felt awful from the start of the day knowing that this was going to be a challenging day. So I sat out on the front porch with my wife and said, you know what? I feel blah. I feel awful. This is why I feel awful. I... I believe that these are the moments when I should be able to have a drink. These are the proper times. And she said, you know what? Those are the times that we used to have drinks, but today we're going to do it a different way. Jeff, you're just dropping value bombs right now. (laughs) Seriously. So you you, you just leaned into your emotions, which is like episode 80. You know, today I feel blah. You're creating accountability with your wife. So you're feeling the emotions as they come without the aid of, in my opinion, the most dangerous drug in the world, alcohol. Your wife sounds like a kick-ass wife, a rock star. Find me one of those when you can. And you made it through those (laughs) days. Nice job. Yeah. Yeah. And so other than, you know, a couple of the really tough days in the holidays that kind of come around those cocktails, the the other the other days have been amazing. I mean, every day I'm trying to have a good, thankful mind of all the and, and the podcast helps there, too. I mean, it's constantly reminding you of where you were. Somebody will share an experience or an emotion and you reconnect and you kind of trail off into where you suffered in that same area. And it's a constant reminder, but for the most part, you know, it's been a great 55 days, feel really good, have some, you know, tests and trials that come up in the future, but today I feel great. (laughs) Value bomb number nine from Jeff. Today I feel great one day at a time. Hey, Jeff, we have reached the rapid fire round. If you could answer these questions within 30 to 60 seconds, that would be great. Are you ready? Sure. Okay. Why not? What else we got going on? (laughs) Question number one. What was your worst memory from drinking Jeff? Towards that six month tailspin after my DUI, I did the worst thing that I've done. I was actually supposed to be the officiant at uh, my friend's wedding. And, you know, it's a Friday night. I thought, you know, I'm going to start doing all of the take notes. And, you know, I, I had a couple of drinks. I thought that would warm my feelings about this wedding coming up. And it descended into me hating marriage, hating, you know, uh, just self-pity descent where I drank all night. I was not competent by the next morning to perform the wedding. 
And this is what alcohol does. I am a person that prides himself on taking care of everybody. And I disappointed everybody in my close social circle by not showing up from that wedding. And so we can say we're one thing, but alcohol can take us in a completely different direction with that, you know, cognitive dissonance that your mind can tell you one thing and the alcohol can kind of absolutely show you that you're, you're different. You know, that's the lowest point I ever got. Sure. And next question, Jeff, what's your plan in sobriety moving forward? I don't know. (laughs) I'm I'm kind of keeping this thing organic. I, I, I completely submerged myself in the, in the podcast. My wife is uh, six foot two, so I refer to her as my higher power. But nice. <laughs> uh, in all honesty, she is she is part of my plan. I mean, she's the one that I am accountable to. I have absolute freedom to mess up if I want to. I don't believe she'd love me any less. I don't think my son would love me any less. And that kind of freedom, you don't want to destroy. You don't want to put yourself in a place where you're bound by a substance or by alcohol and not free. And so I don't want to mess that up. I want to use her as my accountability partner. I do have another person in the program that I know that I can call on. And then I'm just going to kick the tires on other uh, areas that have been revealed to me throughout the podcast. I I ordered uh, Annie Grace's book, inspired by her podcast. Yeah, yeah. So you know, I'm a handful of chapters in and, you know, at each direction, I'm going to just say, what now? You know, and there's so much content on the podcast, the resources on the webpage that, you know, you can't exhaust them. So I'm just going to be open to my true higher power. I'm going to be open to saying, God, what's next, you know? And so this is one of those steps today. And tomorrow it might be reading the book. I'm interested in uh, delving into the I think it's the WeStandTogether.org, which is very inspirational. I think uh, uh, Kevin is his name, uh-huh. but uh, he's been yeah. So I'm just I'm just going to keep moving forward and saying what's next, and I'm only believing that good things are to come. I love how your answer was I don't know, but the key word there yeah. was organic. Usually, organic is not including your ideas. Because if it was, it's like, well, I think I should do this next, then we're all effed. So it sounds that you're open to whatever your higher power presents in front of you. You're open to the group, reading these books. That sounds fantastic. And Jeff, last question. What parting piece of guidance can you give to listeners who are thinking about quitting drinking? I thought about this. For me, I would just go back to episode 99 and uh, look at Mona's story. Um, here's a Here's a gal that's 23 years old, and she... I don't think there's anybody out here who's gone through consequences of drinking or a 10-year laborious period of trying to figure this thing out that worked, that was not totally pumped up by Mona at age 23, just saying, you know, I thought about so much whether I have a problem with drinking or whether I'm an alcoholic. What if I just said, I don't need this in my life and just move on without it? Would it not be a better life? I think everybody in the recovering community are like pumping their fists going, she nailed it at age 23. Seriously. That was I would awesome. Have anybody, I would have anybody go back to that podcast and say, which person do I want to be? Do I want to be the person that does jail time? Do I want to be the person that has multiple DUIs? Because it's not a matter of, of, of if, it's a matter of when, right? So totally. 
I would just I would just have people compare and contrast and say which 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 person do I want to be? What part of my life do I want to spend figuring this out? Because if you do really have a problem or you think you have a problem, you might spend the next 10, 15 years, you know, tripping yourself up and and I don't wish that on anyone. Neither would I and Jeff. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you so much for sending in uh, your email. I loved reading it and I loved hearing the story in person. Much appreciated. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you, Paul. I don't think I could have done it without you guys. If you have any interest in volunteering at Hope Rehab, send us an email at info at recoveryelevator.com and we can possibly set you up with a volunteer opportunity or perhaps an internship as well. While attending Hope Rehab, I got excited for the Recovery Elevator Retreat August 24th to August 27th in beautiful Big Sky, Montana, up in the forest, because I'm going to take a lot of the things that I enjoyed from that rehab center, the workshops, etc., and implement those in the personal wellness recovery retreat we're going to have in Bozeman, Montana. Now you could, now I say could, because this retreat probably will fill up. We're already a third full with seven months out from booking, but you could learn all these tips and tricks as well to learn how to live a happy and successful life without alcohol if you attend the retreat. So you can go to recoveryelevator.com forward slash retreats with an S to get more information on that. Sober selfies, be proud. Let's shred the shame. Send a photo to info at recoveryelevator.com with your name in a subject line and how long you've been sober for. So Cafe RE is the private group, but at the bottom of the page on the recoveryelevator.com website, we have the forum. You can join that. It's totally free. Right now we're approaching 500 members and the conversation is heating up. I like it. So Recovery Elevator, we took the elevator down. We got to take the stairs back up. And when you're on the stairs, remember, it's really an issue if doing the work or not. 80% of the people that come out of rehab centers, they relapse. The counselor, Hank, told us why it was clear. Most of us, we don't do the work. Some of us are skipping steps. So when you're coming back up those metaphorical steps, make sure you hit each one. You can't skip them. Every single one. We can do this.